0: Hello, everyone. This is Cassie Burns, co-founder of All Your Data. I'm an attorney who's been using AI and machine learning for 10 years. I love data and love talking to people about data, and that's what this podcast is about. Each episode of Cassie and will feature a new guest. Each guest comes from a different background with a different approach and attitude towards technology. We'll talk about their experiences and hopefully we'll learn a thing or two. Thanks for joining. Let's get started with Cassie and Sarah Peters, Sarah Peters. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So Sarah, thank you for joining us again. Tell everybody how we know each other. We were college roomies at Henderson State University. That's right. The best college roommates, I have to say. The best Right, We were roommates for three years, weren't we? Yes. And the dorm we lived in was torn down after I graduated, and we were the last residents of that dorm. Of Pines Hall. Pines Hall, where the fire alarm system was shout and get out. That's what I distinctly remember from my freshman year. So,
1: I was telling my daughter about that the other day.
0: (laughs) Was she horrified? Like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Sarah, you come from a unique perspective. You are an English professor, definitely have more accolades beyond being an English professor. The purpose of this podcast is to talk to different people about how we're dealing with technological advances and great things about it and frustrating things about it. So tell me a little bit about your current role as a professor and let me know what you're doing
1: i am professor of english at east central university in ada oklahoma also i am associate provost and dean of graduate studies and in my associate provost role i oversee the center for excellence in teaching and learning which is focused on instructional design as well as instructional technology and faculty development and so ai And technology in general has been really significant in all of those roles as a teacher, as a scholar, as an administrator, and as someone supporting faculty in integrating technology into their classes.
0: I'm assuming so in that position. You've probably heard of a little thing called ChatGPT. Is that correct? Absolutely. So tell me what you know about it and how you're all dealing with that in the university setting.
1: What I know about ChatGPT, I've experimented with it a little bit myself in various roles, and it it is freely available to students. It's very easy to access. It's very easy to use, freely available to faculty as well. And it's very good at understanding and replicating human speech. One reason that everyone's paying attention to it is because people who have never intentionally used AI before are using it a lot, all of a sudden. And I say intentionally, so I think people don't realize the extent to which AI is already integrated into their lives. And so chat GPT feels very new to a lot of people because this is a deliberate and intentional choice that people are actively experimenting with. And also a lot of people are afraid of.
0: What's the current vibe by a lot of the professors and the administrators about the technology? And, and as a counterpoint, there's a discourse in the legal community. It's going to take your jobs away. It's going to make your life easier. So there, there seems to be like those two extremes on the, on the spectrum in the legal world.
1: Both of those things are very prominent. The most recent issue of the Chronicle of Higher Education is dedicated to AI. I would say every Every issue of the Chronicles since November has featured a story on AI. And this current issue addresses exactly what you're saying, that there's all there's these extreme views and then everything in between. And all of that is happening at the same time. And there's no real dominant trend in people's attitudes towards it. Everyone's kind of desperately trying to figure out what's going on. I think there are ways that it, will dramatically change the way that we work, but it's not going to dismantle higher education as we know it. I don't think it's going to lead to a tremendous epidemic in cheating. I don't think it's going to destroy academic publishing. There are many people who do believe
0: that though. So can you discuss that a little bit further? Why do you think it won't dismantle these things? So I think
1: as far as faculty go, when we're thinking about teaching and learning and in my role as a professor and also as as working in my department toward faculty development, there is a lot of concern with academic integrity, as there should be, but there's a fear of widespread cheating. And I think the reason that this is not tremendously alarming to me, is that this is, we have had students using technology to try to cheat for decades, right? This is not a new phenomenon. And also one thing that professors who are really worried about cheating, a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people Their focus when they're thinking about cheating and academic integrity is on how do we catch the cheaters? How do we detect it? And then how do we enact consequences for students? What do we do about it in a formal process? And I my personal opinion is that that is completely the wrong approach that we have been as long as I've been in higher ed. And so that's 20 years. 20 years in higher ed, we have always been trying to catch the students who are using technology to cheat. And we have always been terrible at it. We get this cheating detection software and we get overconfident in it. And we use it to, first of all, deter cheating because we can say we're very confident that we're going to catch you when you cheat and then on the other side of it to catch the cheaters and punish them and that has never been very effective because as soon as you create a technology that's going to detect this, students will figure out how to get around it and the students who are smart about cheating and crafty and essentially good at it. They're going to get around the detection software and the ones that are not crafty about it, which is most students, students, if they're going to plagiarize, if they're going to cheat, they're usually going to do it out of desperation and out of fear. They get themselves in a bind. They're afraid of failure. They don't know what to do. So they're taking a desperate quick action. And when they do that, they're not thinking through it. They're not planning it out and strategizing. And so it's very easy to see. If you are a teacher who has any experience, even the experience of one semester in comparing a student's work across the semester or across a class, it's easy to see what's going on when you have students acting out of desperation. And so the technological helps, the tools that we have for detecting plagiarism and cheating, they're just, they've never been effective. And I think in terms of teaching and learning, I personally do not use, I have used them in the past. When I began teaching writing, when I was being taught how to teach, that was central to it. We used turnitin.com and ran the papers through that service. And it was taught to me as an essential part of teaching a writing class. And later, as I grew more experienced and more confident in making my own judgments, I stopped using that because in addition to it not being very effective, it sends the wrong message to my students. It tells them at the outset, I am suspicious of you, I don't trust you. And so I'm gonna employ this kind of surveillance technology on you. And we have other examples of that. We have things like, Respondus, which takes videos of students as they're taking a test and prevents them from opening windows. And students know how to get around that. And some people approach those, the limitations of Respondus by amping up surveillance in other ways. And some people have stopped using it, but I think the right approach is to redesign our Courses, redesign our assessments. Understand that, you know, what the way we're teaching now doesn't necessarily look like the way we taught 10 years ago or two years ago. And we have to always be evaluating the quality of our assessments. And there's many ways to evaluate student learning, there's many ways to help students acquire knowledge and skills. And if we are just relying on old methods of like lecture, test, giant research papers, we're going to bump into this new technology that is giving students tools to, from one perspective, cheat their way through it. But we can also help students see it from another perspective, which is let's understand what this tool is, learn how to use it, and use it in a way that
0: enhances student learning rather than threatens it. I have quite a few questions to follow up from that. So the first is a comment and then a question. I'm a firm believer that... There is going to be a sameness in the output that we get from a lot of these generative AI tools where it will have a style to it, especially if someone is not very effective in their prompt engineering. And I think because of that sameness that will happen, nearly like blanding with the branding concept and the visual concepts, I firmly believe that human-created content will be, become a premium because there, there's a creative leap in, in connection and in writing style that a generative AI is not going to be able to do unless you're really working at it through through very sophisticated prompt engineering. I firmly believe that there will be a premium on that kind of content because we will be driven to getting that kind of human created content. And I would love to hear that from your perspective, is that something that you saw if you didn't rely on software to detect plagiarism, is that because you could tell a change in people's writing style on your own? Would love to hear your thoughts on my maybe idealistic hope for the future of us using AI. I do
1: completely agree with you i see it the same way that you do that there's a humanity to to human creation there's a kind of emptiness in things that are solely generated by ai and that when ai is used as a tool with human creativity in companionship then that can produce something really meaningful and valuable just having a prompt entered into generative AI is not gonna produce that, and that is gonna be detectable. So in my experience as a teacher, I can go back to something like Turnitin.com and those kind of plagiarism checkers, legacy plagiarism checkers. And my perspective on something like Chat GPT and detecting that is pretty similar to what I've been working with for 20 years. I can see when a student has plagiarized in, as I mentioned earlier, like comparison to their previous work, that there is a shift in tone. There's a shift in voice that is detectable. And sometimes that is a shift compared to earlier work they've submitted. Often it's a shift in the middle of a document. And so if someone's written an essay, your three paragraphs in, and the voice of the fourth paragraph is significantly different. And I can see that it comes back to course design that I've got to design a course that scaffolds assignments so that I see early stages of a student's work that, you know, the research paper, the 10 page research paper that comes at the end, this is not the first thing I've seen even for that one assignment that we've been building to this over the semester. And I've seen a student's work early. I've seen the way their thinking has evolved from one stage of the process to the next. So I can recognize that individual student's style in their final product, but also that kind of instructional design leads to more learning. That when those pieces are scaffolded and I can give my students feedback along the way, they are going to get better on the way than if I give them lots of instruction, but only respond to what they are seeing as a final product. And so the changes I can make inside my course that help disincentivize cheating, because if they were going to cheat on the final product, they're going to have to also figure out a way to cheat all the intermediate steps as well. So this is really disincentivizing, trying to plagiarize, trying to cheat, but also it it has greater and more important benefits than deterring cheating. It really leads to better student learning. To say something, I don't know, controversial to some, mundane to others, that maybe the 10-page term paper isn't the best way to start with and why are we still doing that? Why do we feel like that's the way to measure student learning is to rely on this like really old standard of them demonstrating what they know? It's definitely not the only way. And it's not the most useful way when you get outside of the classroom. The 10 page term paper is relevant in a very limited context. And
0: so let's maybe stop doing that. I love that. And I feel the same way about law school, Sarah. So, Great minds think alike because I had to sit for the a bar exam again after 15 years last year. And I think there's a different perspective you have when you do something after you've been practicing, been in the world for a while, and you realize, you know what? A lot of this stuff that I'm having to memorize for this exam. Maybe that made sense 50 years ago when you didn't have the internet, but now it, it doesn't. And the expectations of what we have to accomplish in a given day as a professional, whether it's legal, whether it's writing, a lot of what we're challenged with is multitasking. We're expected to do a lot in a little amount of time we're not just given one finite task and left alone for that one thing. In my experience, and I think in a lot of other people beyond the legal profession, we're expected to do so many things in a given amount of time. We have a lot of things hitting us in a lot of directions, alerts and email and Teams messages and so many things. And I think that there needs to be pulling forward of education, how would you see, if you could say, let's have a sandbox, let's maybe do a proof of concept of how we may shift kind of assessment or or what to focus on, what would you see that being, Sarah? This
1: is already happening for so many people, right? So many instructors are already making this move. And for a lot of reasons, we've seen it as a need to move toward what we call um, authentic assessment, which is work that is more relevant to the world beyond the classroom. This can be especially impactful for students who are first-generation students or students who struggled academically early in their experience or may have had a negative experience with education before coming to college and those students have A relationship with education that can hinder their ability to develop their own academic identity. And so they come to college and they think, I don't know if I'm college material, I don't know if I can do this. So when I teach freshman comp, for example, on the first day, we hold the first class, I introduce myself, I talk about here's what we're going to do this semester, here's what you're going to learn, and then multiple people stay after class and tell me on the first day, I am terrible at English. I am terrible at writing. Like they announce it to me day one, I'm going to fail. And I just wanted you to know in advance. And when we think about, okay, what our students need to learn matters beyond these walls, beyond this classroom. And we all know this is true, but the students, some of the students don't know that it's true they see academia as as separate from the rest of the world. And it's a world to them that they're already failing even before they've started. And so making a connection to the values and experience that a student brings with them and the goals that they have for themselves beyond college is a strategy that can really increase the chances of success for those students who are coming in with like imposter syndrome and stereotype threat and those kinds of things that that really hinder student success. The kinds of work that we can do here are looking into work that's happening in various fields, industries in the world outside of education. What kinds of, if we're talking about writing, for example, what kind of writing is happening in offices, what kinds of writing is happening in research and development, what kinds of writing is happening in tech, in manufacturing, and we'll see, first of all, that that people are writing in all of those fields. And that composing things, communicating ideas comes in a lot of forms that are not text. And so we can look at those examples outside of the academic world and bring those in and connect them to our learning objectives. We can keep our learning objectives, but we can get there in a way that helps students see the value beyond this semester, this course, even this college degree outside of the walls of the university. That's really what authentic assessment means. And so maybe it looks like a shorter piece of writing that has embedded digital links to videos, to audio, to images. Maybe it looks like a video that is produced that cites research that communicates research for a particular audience, but maybe is not in print there's a different format. So there's a lot of different media that you can bring in that can help students understand that the communication skills they're getting in their freshman comp class are transferable to so many other areas. And even in academia, we're communicating in all these different ways that are not a research paper. The research paper in academia, the published journal articles, they have A value. But that value is very context specific. And so if we can take what is meaningful about that in this context, and then find out how to do this in different contexts, that can lead to more meaningful knowledge production for students, and also make them value it.
0: I can see that context a lot applying again in a law school setting because the focus is very much like brief writing, but that's not the only style of writing you do as an attorney. You're writing emails to clients. And I think a lot of times people have a hard time transitioning from that rote of what they were taught versus having that flexibility of being able to on the fly learn how to write. I want to go back to the technology. You may not have heard of this. This came up a few weeks ago and really made the rounds in the legal world. There was an attorney who filed a brief and used ChatGPT as their search engine because they believed it was just like a search engine and it hallucinated and made up citations and they didn't validate the citations, they filed the brief as is. And so there was a competency issue, a lack of fully understanding of what the technology is and the limitations of it. you know For example, I know garbage in, garbage out is the main rule of AI, having worked with AI for so long. But I could see the value of not you, not do, taking the fear mongering approach to technology in an educational setting, but saying, "This is a tool that that students are going to have to learn how to navigate and use." And to be honest, I feel like there is a hyper vigilance and hyper fatigue learning so much because there's an assumption that AI is easy. It's a tool. It's going to make your it's going to make your life easier, but. It doesn't necessarily, and so it can be off-putting if you're using one of these tools right away and you don't get this beautiful output that you see other people talking about on Twitter and they're like, look at this amazing thing I use with AI. My life is so easy. But they may have spent an hour, two hours, three hours really refining and iterating it to get to the end product. And I think that creates a feeling of stress and anxiety for people trying to learn new things. So I see the value, or I would see the value in really embracing it and teaching people how to use it as a tool and not as the sole work product.
1: Yeah, I think that we're already seeing that. uh, A lot of faculty everywhere, and in particular at my institution, jumped right on to ChatGPT. And mid-semester, they are looking at how are people using this tool? How can I use it? How can I bring it into my classroom? and even the end of the fall term last year when this was you know fairly new uh they were redesigning some of their learning activities and some of their assessments in the classroom to to bring ai into it and that was for many of those instructors very collaborative with their students that they were encouraging students to experiment with it in real time, even as the teacher was experimenting, learning things they didn't really understand. They would produce something together, they would put in some input, they would compare it. A lot of what people were doing right away was putting an artifact into AI and asking for feedback, asking ChatGPT to give them some feedback and to give them some revisions or they would give a prompt to a human and give it to the chat GPT and compare the output. What are some of the identifying markers and then what is it that we can take from the generative AI product that is good and valuable and use in this other context? And so I think a lot of people have been very excited to integrate that into their classrooms. Very recently, my department was leading a workshop on effective online teaching and how to engage students in an online classroom. One of the big problems in online classrooms are everyone's familiar with the really boring discussion boards and very superficial lack of engagement. It's kind of a joke that what online classes are kind of built on. And so we were experimenting with using AI in the discussion boards instead of writing your own response, you would put a prompt into the discussion board, get a result, and then share that along with your interpretation analysis commentary on that result. And so it took something that is that is assumed to be really superficial and boring into something that was more engaging and that students wouldn't necessarily be able to just steal off Google or just rephrase their
0: classmates' words. It's nearly like gamifying an online lecture in a way. Absolutely. Yeah. I would love to hear in your closing thoughts, what you see as maybe the next year, two years you're going to be seeing in the university setting with with technology.
1: I think AI is going to be central to the technology developments in education for a while. That's going to be the most prominent thing happening. And I think it'll be integrated into more aspects of teaching and learning. And I think more instructors are going to actively seek that out. For one thing, the hand-wringing is not over. There will be another year of people panicking over, what does this mean for students? What does this mean for academic integrity? There will be people who continue to try to develop and use detection software, and that will not work. Over the next year, I think we're gonna see people start to let go of the idea that we can just catch the AI cheaters and we can use this easy detection software. They're gonna move on from that. And I think people are gonna be really, instructors are gonna be really pushed to evaluate and redesign their courses. I think that we will see AI more deeply integrated into regular assignments in classes. Also, I think we'll see it in textbooks. I think so a great deal of textbooks now never go to print. They are fully digital. And they're not static. I think a lot of people perceive eBooks as a kind of static object, like a giant PDF. And that's not what electronic textbooks are. They're more fragmented, they're interactive, and often students don't purchase them and own them. They subscribe to them for a limited amount of time, and it's built into the learning management system. And I think we'll see AI built into textbooks in some kind of on-time assessment as a study help where a student can log into their textbook and type in a question and say, oh, I don't really understand this concept, can you help me with it? And then a chat will talk them through understanding a new concept. Or the students will have opportunities to do immediate formative assessments where they, the textbook will ask them a question and they will give a response in natural human speech And they'll have a conversation where the chat will give them feedback and say, oh, well, you're almost there. You're doing really good with this aspect of it, but you seem to be misunderstanding this part. Why don't you try this activity and that can help you. Maybe they'll have test reviews and the test review itself will say, go do this activity and that's going to help you learn more. And why don't you try this? And so there's going to be a lot more of that built directly into the textbooks that even instructors who are hesitant to develop those activities themselves, hesitant to experiment and learn about how to use the tools, they'll just be able to adopt them as a textbook and students will have direct access to it.
0: I love that idea. And I assume that the professor or the teacher would be able to see the back and forth, just to see the growth of the the student engaging with the AI. Any other closing thoughts, Sarah, as we wrap this up? So I think that something that we might
1: be in danger of losing sight of, and that has to be central to all of the work we're doing, whatever field you're in, and in education in particular is accessibility i think we need to prioritize universal design we need to know that everyone who's encountering the content that we produce who is enrolling in our courses who's reading what we're putting out on social media what we're publishing in blogs they're going to have a lot of different life experiences a lot of different styles of understanding and accessing information they're going to have disabilities that are visible and invisible we're not going to know that going in and we might not ever know that we might be directly interacting with students all semester and they might never disclose to us what their their disabilities are what their access challenges are and so as we think about technology and the way that it affects education, including the way that we are integrating AI into this, we have to keep accessibility as a a top priority all the time. We have to make no assumptions about what our students have access to, and we have to keep learning about how do we make the new things that we're producing accessible to all people
0: who want to use it. I think that is an excellent point, And I think it's a great way to end this podcast. Thank you again, Sarah, for joining me, my inaugural podcast. I couldn't think of a better person to have as a guest. Thank you so much, Dr. Sarah Peters at ECA in Oklahoma. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed this discussion.